All right, well, good morning, West Park. If you will, you can turn back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, what Don read for us earlier. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. And you can just think about this. You don't have to actually say it out loud, but I want to ask you a question. Where were you on Tuesday, January 9th, 2007? Tuesday, January 9th, 2007. Do you remember? Well, for me, I was starting my second semester of eighth grade, so it was a very emotional day. Not because I remember anything about it, but just because every day in eighth grade is an emotional day. And here is why I want to bring up that date, because even though I don't actually remember anything from that day, and it sounds like you all don't either, It has greatly affected my life, and it has greatly affected your life, far more than most days. Here's why. On that day, a man named Steve, wearing a black turtleneck and blue jeans, walked onto a stage in San Francisco, and he lifted up a tiny, I don't have one, but he lifted up a tiny glowing rectangle, he called it the iPhone, and the crowd went wild. And it's not an exaggeration to say that since that day, our world was forever changed, right? I mean, think about this. I mean, for some ways, it's been changed for the better, right? I don't know how we survived without apps to give us directions, right? (laughs) Without my Maps app, I could not leave Knoxville and feel safe. For a while, Allie and I lived in Texas, about 16 hours drive away from here, away from our family, and I can't imagine not having FaceTime to be able to keep up with them. We had a baby during that season, so they were able to see their grandson over FaceTime. What a a blessing, what a gift. During the height of the pandemic, it was a gift just to be able to stay connected with people when we were at home. And think of all the content that's available to us to help us follow Jesus, podcasts, audiobooks, and the Bible in dozens of different English translations. I've learned so much about Jesus because of technology. And by the way, quick advertisement, West Park has a podcast now, so utilize that. I think you'll learn a lot. It's, it's a real blessing. And truly, these things I've talked about, and we could probably list thousands more, are blessings and incredible gifts from God that we should take time to thank Him for often. However, Can we agree that the news isn't all good? It's not all good. Uncle Ben from Spider-Man got it right when he said, with great power comes great responsibility. And in 15 years since that day, it has become abundantly clear that most people cannot handle the power our smartphones give us. Our situation is actually reminiscent of another time. And so I want to go back a little bit further, more than 15 years in the past. Let's go back 2,600 years, because 2,600 years ago in the 6th century B.C., God's people were taken from their homes, and they found themselves in exile in Babylon. They found themselves in a foreign land with foreign gods and foreign customs. And I want to make the argument this morning that we are actually in a very similar situation. We haven't been forced from our homes as the Jews were, 
But David Kinneman of the Barna Group makes a compelling argument that we are, in fact, exiles. Because every time we pick up that glowing rectangle in our pocket, or every time we sink into the couch as we watch our streaming service of choice, we are transported to a foreign land with foreign gods and foreign customs. Kinneman calls it digital Babylon. Digital Babylon. Now, before I move on, let me make something clear. First of all, I'm not against technology, okay? I like technology. And also, something even more important that I need to make clear, God is sovereign over all technology. When Steve Jobs walked onto that stage, God did not have his head in his hands saying, what are we going to do, right? He was not freaking out. He is sovereign over digital Babylon, just as he was the Jews' exile. But what I want to hopefully show you this morning is that the, that that does not mean that our devices are not dangerous to our spiritual life. Let me just say, this sermon is coming out of a burden, a personal burden, I think for my own life and my own soul, but also over 10 years of ministry. I've seen countless people who really want to follow Jesus. They really desire it, but their technology is holding them back. That's the burden that this sermon is coming out of, out of. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot ignore this topic. Clearly, it affects us all. I mean, most of you all are holding an iPhone right now, right, or some kind of smartphone. It affects us all. Think about this. On average, people spend almost five hours a day on their smartphone. You're only awake for like 16, right? The average American checks their smartphone 81,500 times a year. I think the stat is that you touch it around 2,116 times a day. Or, so 81,500 times a year, or that's once every 4.3 minutes of their waking life, which means that you will check your phone eight times today while I'm speaking, okay? I hope you don't, but, but you will. <laughs> The average Christian young adult takes in digital content 20 times more than they take in spiritual content. I don't have a stat on it, but I would say it's not much better for older adults, right? So what is our response? Obviously, this topic cannot be ignored, but what do we do? Well, I think that's where our passage comes in. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is what Don read for us earlier. So this is Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so next Sunday, we're going to actually start a series where we're going to spend about a year in this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. So we're really excited about that. But I want us to think this morning about who it was that Paul was writing to. He's writing to Christians in Rome, men and women trying to follow Jesus in a hostile culture. We could call them 
exiles. And Paul is reminding these Christians of something very important. If you're going to see true gospel transformation in your life, if you're going to be formed more and more into the image of God, you have to realize that the world you live in is not neutral. You see, spiritual formation happens to everyone, whether they want it or not. Our soul is always being formed. That is not optional. It is always being formed. We are always being formed by something. And what Paul tells us here is that as Christians, we are called to transformation, right? To be transformed into the image of Jesus, to look more and more like him. But we have to see that we are living in contested space. We're living in the formation machine that is the world, and it is seeking every single day to conform us to its image. So if we don't confront the things that are seeking to conform us, our transformation will always be undermined. One author put it like this. He said, it's like a boat that's sinking, and we're taking the water and throwing it out as best as we can, but we're ignoring the holes that are actually letting the water in. If we're going to be transformed, we have to fight against being conformed. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to identify two ways that I think our technology specifically is conforming us to the world. And obviously there are more than two, but for time's sake, I'll stop with those. And for each one, I want to give you a practice from the life of Jesus that I hope will counter that conforming that our phones and our, and our internet and our, our social media is doing. And I hope that, that these practices will allow us as a church to, first of all, just start a conversation, right? I can't answer every question this morning. But to start a, com- a, a conversation about what it looks like to thrive in digital Babylon. To thrive in digital Babylon. So let's start with the first one. Here's the problem. We are hurried and we are in need of the Sabbath. We are hurried and we are in need of the Sabbath. It's one of the most influential books that I've read in the last few years. Is a book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And so if after today we get done with this sermon and you want to explore more on this topic, that would be a great place to start. That is, that book has affected my thinking as much as any other, and I'm going to be quoting it a lot, and honestly there's a lot that will probably come from that book that I don't even remember because it's had such an influence on me. But let me point out that, that title, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, it actually comes from another one of my favorite authors, a philosopher named Dallas Willard. And the story goes that Dallas Willard was on the phone with a pastor that he was a mentor to. And this pastor was busy, and he was, he was struggling, and he's trying to pastor a, a very large church, and he just needed help from his mentor. And so he says, hey, Dallas, what do I do? How do I follow Jesus in this day and age? It's so hard. What's your, what's your advice to me as an older Christian? What would you say to me? We could rephrase this question like this to go along with our passage. How do I make sure I'm being transformed to look like Jesus rather than conformed to the world? And there was this long, awkward silence. If you've listened to any of Willard's teachings, it's very long. He's a slow speaker. There's a long, awkward silence, and then he responds with this. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. 
If you want to follow Jesus, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And the pastor wrote it down, and that's good, right? Like, I'll save that one. He said, what else? Another long silence. Here's what Willard says. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's a profound statement, isn't it? But it's also easier said than done. Because we're busy, aren't we? Are you busy? (laughs) We're busy. (laughs) I mean, that's how we greet each other now, right? Hey, how you doing? Good, just busy. Which, by the way, is just saying... I want you to know I'm important, okay? I'm really important. I have a lot of stuff going on. But we're busy. And if we're not busy, then then who are we, right? That's what we think. If we're not busy, if I'm not doing things constantly, then who am I? And our technology has just made this all the easier. I hear there was a magical time where you couldn't work at home and had to actually go to the office. Now, for most people, our homes are our offices, And even if that's not the case, then you always have your work right there with you in your pocket. Playing with kids, eating dinner, enjoying time with friends, worshiping God, listening to a sermon. Your email is never more than a click away. And it's there waiting every single morning right when your alarm goes off. Corey Ten Boom once pointed out that if the devil can't make us bad, he will make us busy. And he has more tools than ever to help him in his task. So we are busy, and that is a problem to our souls. But let me point out, this is not a new problem. We're told a famous story in the Gospel of John about a time where Jesus entered into a village where his friend Martha was. And she welcomed him into her house And here's what we're told, starting in Luke 10, 39. It says, And Martha had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we know this story, right? Martha was busy, but here's the thing I always notice. She was busy doing a really good thing, right? I mean, I catch myself, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, especially as someone in full-time ministry, I catch myself defending Martha every single time. Like, Jesus, she is literally serving you, right? How else are you going to eat? Someone has to do the work. Someone has to get the work done. What is she supposed to do? But Jesus' gentle rebuke of her is the same gentle rebuke I hear every time I meditate on this passage. What was Martha's problem? Not that she wasn't doing good things, but that she was letting all the good things she was doing keep her from the essential thing. It kept her from the most essential, being Jesus. And I can relate to that. 
I can fill up my schedule with a lot of good things. I mean, I literally get paid to do stuff for Jesus, right? I can fill up my calendar with things for him and then look up and realize I missed him. I missed Jesus. I was pointing others to him and I was doing things for him and I was trying to serve others. And in the process, I missed him. Can anyone else relate? And so that's why I'm so thankful that I've been introduced to a gift that God has given us. The gift of the Sabbath. So that's the practice I want to talk about here. The gift of the Sabbath. Now just really quick, when we talk about Sabbath, there are a lot of questions that come up about the Sabbath's role in our new covenant lives. Questions like this. Is the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments still a commandment? Are Christians commanded to take a Sabbath? Does it matter what day you take it on? There are plenty of debates here, right? We could, the list could go on and on, and there's plenty of books written about this. Well, this morning, I want to sidestep all of those. <laughs> and all I want to suggest this morning is that in our hurried world, observing a Sabbath day, so setting aside 24 hours of your week for an intentional Sabbath to stop, is beneficial to your soul. And it's a wise thing to do. That's all I'm arguing. Setting aside 24 hours of your week to stop is a beneficial thing for your soul, and it is a wise thing to do. Here's what John Tyson said. He's a pastor in Manhattan. He said, I know of no more formative and countercultural practice for a culture of exhaustion than that of the Sabbath. In a 24-7 world, 24-6 living is a sign, wonder, and prophetic declaration that there is another way to live. It's a declaration that there is another way to live. So what do we do on the Sabbath? Well, here are just two points that have been helpful for me. And there's plenty of other things we could talk about, but just for time's sake, here's a minimum kind of requirement for the Sabbath. Two things that we do. At a minimum, the Sabbath is for rest and remembrance. Rest and remembrance. You can tell I've grown up at West Park. There's two R's for you, right? So rest and remembrance. So start with rest. Rest is what makes the Sabbath day the Sabbath. So that word Sabbath is literally the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop. And so Sabbath is meant to be a day to stop. Exodus 20.11 tells us, For in six days the Lord, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. And so we know the story, right? God creates the world, and then on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. And obviously, as the omnipotent God of the universe, this wasn't because he was tired. His rest was stopping the work that he was doing. And that's the same thing that we do on the Sabbath. We, we stop. For us, one scholar said that the Sabbath means an acceptance of the sovereignty of God. Because you see, work is a really good thing, right? Work is a good thing. But when we purposefully stop working each week, we declare our trust and dependence on God. We acknowledge that the world is not going to fall apart just because we stop. And let me just say, if you're skeptical, if your response is the old cliche, well, the devil doesn't take a day off. And it's good to see who your role model is, right? 
the devil loses, right? The devil loses. And so we need a day off. We need to rest. We need to acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And things aren't going to fall apart when we stop. Now, before I move on, one more quick point. When we're talking about rest, let me, let me make sure you know. There is a big difference between rest and relaxation. Okay? So, you can give me Netflix, a large pizza, and a couch, and I can get relaxed 100% of the time. You cannot keep me from getting relaxed. But here's the thing, maybe, maybe you've, you've seen this. If I spend 12 hours on the couch, watching Netflix, eating pizza. I don't feel rested when I'm done. My soul, maybe my body feels more rested, but my soul feels no more rested than when I began. So there is a difference between rest and relaxation. And so when you're thinking about rest during the Sabbath, think about the things that actually renew your soul. Can you think about some of those things? Maybe a hike in the Smokies or hanging out with your kids or a cup of coffee outdoors, whatever it is. What are the things that actually renew your soul? Find, time, here, find times for rest, not just relaxation. And let me tell you, at a minimum, this is going to require having a plan of what to do with your phone, right? <laughs> you have to have a plan for what you're going to do with your phone during this time. And that could be a summary for this whole sermon. That's really what I'm trying to get started this morning. I can't tell you what to do. I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could outline, here's nine steps on how to thrive in digital Babylon. Do these and you'll be fine. I can't tell you what the plan is for you and your family. But I know you need one. <laughs> okay? If you're going to rest, if you're going to have a Sabbath day, if you're going to actually be come out and have your soul renewed, you need a plan for what you're going to do with your technology. We need a plan. That's the first aspect of Sabbath. Rest. Here's the second one. Remembrance. Remembrance. Speaking of the Sabbath, the Israelites are told in Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So what do we do on a Sabbath? The Sabbath is a time to slow down and remember who God is and what he has done. And it's a, it's a time to remember who you are because of his love for you. That you're not your job, you're not your paycheck, you're not your great successes, and you're not your failures. You are a child of the king. I love this. A.J. Swoboda put it this way. He says, Sabbath is a scheduled, remind, scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do. Rather, we are who we are loved by. Sabbath and the gospel scream the same thing. We do not work to get to a place where we finally get to breathe and rest. That's slavery. Rather, we rest and breathe and enjoy God that we might enter into rest. So Sabbath is a reminder that we are loved by God. That's point one. Let's, point to, let's move to number, or point two here. Because hurry is not our only thing that we're dealing with. It's not the only thing trying to conform us. 
There's another great enemy of the spiritual life, and its name is distraction. That's point two. We are distracted, and we need silence and solitude. The Mary and Martha story, if it was happening today, could easily say this. Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by her iPhone. She just couldn't seem to find the perfect filter for that selfie she took with Jesus that she wanted to post. We live in a distracted age, and it is doing great damage to our soul. We're distracted from Jesus, right? That's the obvious one. We're distracted from Jesus, just like Martha was. She was distracted by her work. We can be distracted just by our phones, spending five hours a day on them. But let me also point out that we are distracted from the people that we are called to love. Our mission statement here is to love God and love people. Our technology can distract us from loving God. It can also distract us from loving people. I'll be honest, one of the things that got me thinking about this more than anything was having a kid and realizing how often I'm sitting there playing with my child, this amazing moment, and there's this phone that's just calling out to me the whole time, calling out to me to check it even though I'm spending time with my son. We're distracted from the people that we're called to love. We're distracted from people who are in need. I can't help but wonder if Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan today, would he include a man or a woman who totally walks by the man who's hurt? Not because she is unloving, but she didn't even see him. She didn't even know. She was on her iPhone the whole time, checking something, and walked right by. And if you asked, hey, what about that man? She would say, what man? I, I, don't, I didn't even see him. Distraction is a huge problem if you desire to follow Jesus. I learned this really weird and disgusting history fact this week. In the Middle Ages, the French actually had this really awful form of torture that they would do, where if you got into enough trouble, they would take ropes and tie them to each of your limbs and then tie each one of those ropes to a different horse and have them run in opposite directions pretty gross, right? You know what they called it? Distraction. Distraction. So I want you to take that gruesome image and I want you to apply it to your soul in 2022. Isn't that it? Our souls are being pulled in a million different directions and it's killing us. Our technology allows us to gain the whole world. But are we losing our souls in the process? Are we losing our souls in the process? And just so you know, the fact that you feel distracted by your phone or, or whatever it is, that's not by accident, okay? That's not by accident. Actually, Silicon Valley insiders have admitted that this is exactly what they want, this quote is really scary to me. This is from Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, and he gave this insight in an interview a few years ago, speaking on the creation of Facebook. He said this, God only knows 
what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with. Because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? <laughs> Many of the apps we're carrying around in our pocket are literally engineered to steal your attention. Outside of the West Park app, by the way. We would never do that to you. Okay? <laughs> Leanne Heilman created it. She's great, so she wouldn't do that. Here's another one, just to make my point even further. In 2017, the CEO of Netflix was asked who their greatest competitor was in the streaming wars. Maybe you've heard this. In his opinion, it wasn't Disney Plus or Hulu. It was sleep. Because that's the only time of day that we cannot be distracted. So I tell you all this because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to take this seriously. You know, most November, something that we do that I think is an amazing thing is we have a stewardship series, right? We take three weeks to talk about how we steward our money, and that's an amazing thing. I'm so glad we do that. But how much thought have you put to how you steward your attention? You've thought a lot about how you steward your money, I'm sure of it. But how do you steward your attention? Because every single one of us has a finite amount. One author summarized it this way. He said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will, that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim over our lives instead of actually living them. Another put it much more bluntly, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, Jesus didn't have Facebook. <laughs> he didn't have Disney+. Plus, but he did live in a world of distractions. The world was very much the same in that way. And Scripture tells us that he responded with regular times of silence and solitude. Think about this. Jesus starts his ministry when John the Baptist baptizes him, right? You remember this? And so he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus' ministry has begun. And do you remember the first thing that he does? He doesn't go gather a crowd. He doesn't preach. He doesn't evangelize. He doesn't heal people. What's the first thing he does? Forty days of silence and solitude. It says the Spirit led him out for 40 days alone by himself with his Father. And this is a theme of Jesus' life. Mark 1.35 tells us, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 5.15 and 16 says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So there were constantly people fighting for Jesus' attention. The crowds 
fascinated by him, just wanting to get close, the, the people wanting to be healed, religious leaders wanting to pick a fight, Jesus' disciples, who it seems that every time he got away for silence and solitude went looking for him, right, over and over and over again. Yet we read that he fought for silence and solitude. He fought for intentional time in the quiet to be alone with himself and his father. And it seems that the busier he got, the more famous he got, the more people needed him, he fought for silence and solitude more, not less. It would be easy for him to say, well, my time here is short, right? I got to heal as many people as I can. I got to preach the message to as many people as I can. But he wouldn't let that happen. Even Jesus knew he needed time alone with his father. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Right? Time alone with Jesus. Do any of us hear that and not think, wow, yeah, that sounds great. Well, before I get on to the practicals, let me ask, why is it so hard? Why do you all look so convicted right now? Because you know you're not doing this. Me, me, I'm talking to myself included. Why is this so hard? I think we can summarize it like this. I think ultimately, it's because silence and solitude can be really scary. In the silence, our anxieties, our fears, our anger, they all come to the surface, don't they? But if we can just always have our iPhone, if we can always just have the TV on in the background, if we can always be with other people where it's noisy, we don't have to deal with the war that rages on inside of us. I heard one comedian say this. He said, why is it that people would risk ruining their lives by texting and driving? He thought about this. Why would we risk ruining our lives Killing someone by texting and driving is because we can't be alone with ourselves even for a moment, even during our commute to work. But let me just say, if we fight the internal noise with social media and video games and everything else, we're only dealing with the symptoms, not the problem. When we do that, we are avoiding transformation. One theologian called silence and solitude the furnace of transformation. I love that image. A furnace is painful, right? It doesn't feel good. It's hot. But silence and solitude is the furnace of transformation. If we're going to be transformed, we have to learn how to be with our anxiety and our anger so that the Holy Spirit can do his transforming work in us. We have to do it. We have to do it. And if we don't, and if we don't, what's going to happen? Well, here's a, an amazing warning, I think. This is, again, from the ruthless elimination of hurry. And I think that it highlights that if we don't do this, it seems that we're destined for a life of conformity to the world, not transformation into the image of Jesus. Here's how the author, John Mark Homer, says it. He says, when we don't practice silence and solitude, we reap the consequences we feel distant from God and end up living off of somebody else's spirituality. Via a podcast feed or book or one-page devotional we read before we rush out the door to work. We feel distant from ourselves. We lose sight of our identities and callings. We get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. 
We feel an undercurrent of anxiety that rarely, if ever, goes away. This sense that we're always behind, always playing catch-up, never done. Then we get exhausted. We wake up and our first thoughts are, already? I can't wait to go to bed. We lag through our days, our low-grade energy on loan from our stimulants of choice. Even when we catch up on our sleep, we feel a deeper kind of tired. Then we turn to our escapes of choice. We run out of energy to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, say prayer, and instead we turn to the cheap fix. Another glass of wine, a new show streaming online, our social media feeds, or even pornography. We become easy prey for the tempter, just furthering our sense of distance from God and our souls. And then emotional unhealth sets in. We start living from the surface of our lives, not the core. We're reactionary. The smallest thing is a trigger, a throwaway line from the boss, a snide comment from a coworker, a suggestion from a spouse or roommate. It doesn't take much. We lose our tempers, bark at our kids, get defensive, sulk, feel angry or sad, often both. These are the signs and symptoms of a life without silence and solitude. Does anyone relate? <laughs> I, I do, right? That is a life without silence and solitude. We desperately need it. So what's that look like? Well, the practice of silence and solitude is simply planning out intentional time in your day to be alone in the quiet with God. Maybe you already do this and you call it having your quiet time. That's an amazing thing, right? It's a really simple concept. Here's what silence and solitude is. It's sitting on your patio in the calm of the early morning, Bible and coffee in hand. It's taking a walk in a park, just spending time with God, admiring the creation that shouts his glory. It's not putting on a podcast or music on your commute and just being in the silence, spending some time alone with God. Some people throughout church history have called this wasting time with God in the best sense of the word. It's wasting time with God. It's not worrying in those moments about being productive. It's just being with him. And in the end, we realize it's not a waste of time at all. It's the most productive time you can possibly spend. And I, I feel like I've, I've, I've come a little heavy. So can I, can I say this? Let me say this. Can I remind you the love and the grace that Jesus has for you? And can I, can I remind, this is huge. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Can I remind you that when you enter into this time, you will be distracted. You are a human, okay? Even at our best, I think our attention spans at like 12 seconds, okay? We, we're, we're, we're distracted just naturally. We're sinful human beings. Take technology out of it. We're distracted. But let me say this. If you pray for 10 minutes and you get distracted a thousand times, that is not a failure that is a thousand opportunities to run back to Jesus. And I'll promise you this. A thousand times out of a thousand, you'll be welcomed back with open arms. Please do not judge your spiritual maturity based on how much you get distracted in your prayer life. 
No one can avoid that, I promise you. But what do you do once you're distracted? Run back, right? Run back. Because there's grace. There's grace every single time. Let me close our time together. And then we're going to move into a time of communion. And let me just ask, what is everything that I've been talking about have to do with communion. <laughs> Someone told me today was communion. I was like, how am I going to connect those things? And then I realized everything, right? It's all connected. Let's go back to Romans 12. Paul calls us to be transformed, not conformed. But don't skip over this. What's, what's the basis? What's the basis of our transformation? What's the basis of everything that we have talked about today? Because if we don't see this, you're going to walk out of here and you're not going to be in any better shape than you were. You're just going to be a legalist. Okay? We have to go here. What's the basis? In verse 1, Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. His mercy is the foundation of our transformation. We are busy we are hurried, we are distracted, but Jesus came and was never distracted in his mission of mercy. He came to earth and was fully present to those around him. And no one could stop him from dying the death that he knew he had to die. The death that we deserve. So let me leave you on that note. It's exactly what I just said. His mercy is more, right? You may be distracted, you may be busy, you may need to take a serious audit of how you spend your time. But let me say, his mercy is more, okay? His mercy is more. If you are distracted every single day, guess what? His mercy is more. It's still there. His mercy is more. So here's what I want to do before we take a time of communion. You can go ahead and grab your cup. We've been talking about silence, and I want to give us a chance just to do that right now, just be able to sit in the silence. And so here we're about to, to take communion here in a bit, but let's just take some time just in prayer, just to sit in the silence. And I want you to notice what the things are that kind of crop up, right? What are the anxieties? What are the fears what are the things that come to your mind as we're sitting here in the silence? And here's what I want you to do. Run to Jesus, right? In that moment. Run to Jesus. And so let's do that. Let's just sit here in the silence.
Bible tells us, the night of his betrayal, when he knew that he would soon be heading to the cross, Jesus and his disciples were having a meal. Here's what Luke tells us Jesus said. It says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After they had eaten, he took the cup. The Bible tells us he said this. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Drink from it, all of you.